Welcome to another episode of Chilling with Teddy G, where we discuss anything and everything with absolutely no sugar and no profit. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, all our stories are brought to you totally uncooked. We serve them up raw here. The way we get them is the way we give them. So go grab yourself your favorite cup of coffee, tea, or latte, and join me for the next few minutes on this informative episode of Chilling with Teddy G. My name is Ted Greer, and I'm your host on here, Chilling with Teddy G. Hey, America, can we talk? Just last week, the headline of every major publication was the rate in which COVID-19 was devastating black communities. How then, just a week later, is the headline about plans to reopen the country? I'll tell you how. In the words of Michael Jackson, they don't really care about us. I knew that as those of us who prioritize health equity demanded demographic data to quantify what we already suspected, one of the consequences would be the confirmation that COVID-19 was in fact disproportionately impacting poor people and people of color, which would then give certain folks the green light to reopen the country, effectively declaring open season on people who predominantly look like me. And quite frankly, people who look like you too. I've said it before and I'll say it again. None of us exist in isolation of one another. It's just not what we were created to do or be. If one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And that's exactly why isolation itself has been the best solution for the current circumstance we find ourselves in. When your natural disposition is community, but community spread of a virus has threatened your very way of life, you disassemble, you dissociate, you distance to preserve that which is sacred. Not the country's economy, but the economy of life, community. That economy, the one built on relationship and human capital will forever be in jeopardy if we rush to reopen. Let me tell you a story. The 1918 Spanish flu, which by the way, didn't originate in Spain. In fact, the first reported case was on a military base in the United States. The Spaniards were just first to write about it. But I digress. The Spanish flu, third deadliest pandemic in the history of the world. Over the course of two years, it infected 40% of the world's population, killing somewhere between 20 and 50 million people. And it didn't happen all at once. It happened in three waves. The second and the third being the deadliest. Pay attention. It's that last part that's prescient for our present predicament. You see, that initial wave of flu in the spring of 1918 was rather pedestrian, and people treated it as such. But as the First World War began to draw to a close and millions of soldiers were being moved around the globe, so was the virus moving. By the end of the summer, when it returned back to the States, the Spanish flu was destroying everyone it came in contact with. And there were three U.S. cities in particular that had three very different strategies to combat this deadly strain of influenza. The first was Philadelphia, and Philadelphia's outbreak began in September, a week before a scheduled parade that was expected to attract several hundred thousand Philadelphians. Against physicians' recommendations to cancel the parade, the city's public health director insisted that the parade go on because it would raise millions of dollars in war bonds. Cash money over people. 72 hours after the parade, all 31 of Philadelphia's hospitals were at capacity and 2,600 people were dead by the end of the week. 
Then there was San Francisco. And San Francisco had seen how things played out in Philadelphia and got ahead of the situation by quarantining all naval installations, closing all schools and banning all social gatherings before the flu arrived in October. The city of San Francisco even went a step further by mandating that any citizen caught in public without wearing a gauze mask would be arrested, charged, and fined with disturbing the peace. As a result, the second wave was mild and things were back to normal by November until they weren't. See, the city officials had largely attributed their success to the masks and not the social distancing, when in fact the masks weren't very effective at all. So when the third wave of Spanish flu hit the bay in January of 1919, the city only required people to wear masks while they carried on with business as usual. Consequently, San Francisco ended up being one of the hardest hit cities in the country by the third wave. A later analysis found that if they had kept all of their anti-flu protections in place through the spring of 1919, it could have reduced deaths by 90%. Finally, there was St. Louis. And even before they had their first case, the public health commissioner had healthcare personnel on high alert. All schools and movie theaters and pool halls were closed immediately and all public gatherings were banned. Of course, businesses pushed back, but both the health commissioner and the mayor stood their ground. And when infections began to emerge in civilian populations, as expected, thousands of sick residents were treated at home by a network of volunteer nurses, as opposed to aggregating a bunch of already sick people under one roof in a system that couldn't withstand the crush of cases. Subsequently, the peak mortality rate in St. Louis was only one eighth of Philadelphia's death rate at its worst. Here's what I'm saying, folks. We've seen this movie before and we know exactly how it ends. And because we know better, we expect it to do better. The century old history of Philadelphia and San Francisco doesn't have to repeat itself. Instead, we can try and change history like St. Louis did. A city today that's reporting all but three of its COVID-19 deaths being among African-Americans. It's full circle back to race and ethnicity. The irony in all of this storytelling is that racism is still as much a vehicle for transmission of disease today as it was a century ago. One of the reasons the U.S. cities failed to flatten the Spanish flu curve was because most of the trained nurses had been deployed to battle barracks to triage for wounded soldiers from a world war that claimed 17 million people of its own. So local hospitals back here in the States were heavily undermanned or under woman, rather, except there were plenty of trained and highly qualified black nurses that the Red Cross refused to let work until it was too late because racism. Now, here we are in the year of our Lord 2020 and racism is again on the front lines of a pandemic and that we are the first to be sacrificed for the sake of capitalism. Listen, I miss money, too. I'm the owner of a small business that thrives in the public space of delivering information and inspiration to large groups of people. I've applied for all the available federal small business assistance I can and haven't seen a cent. So I'm as anxious as the next American to get back to work. But I also understand that hurrying back to a convention center full of people is futile if there are no people. While that sounds apocalyptic, that's the mindset that we have to have if we want to make it out of this coronapocalypse with our families intact. Now, 
If you're looking to hold your elected officials accountable, the World Health Organization recommends that any government that wants to start lifting restrictions must first meet six conditions. Number one, disease transmission must be under control. Number two, health systems are able to detect, test, isolate and treat every case and trace every contact. Number three, hotspot risks are minimized in vulnerable, place, vulnerable places like nursing homes. Number four, schools, workplaces, and other essential places have established preventative measures. Number five, the risk of importing new cases can be managed. And number six, communities are fully educated, engaged, and empowered to live under a new normal. If you've been paying attention, you know that we as a country haven't accomplished any of those. <laughs> Yet some politicians want to shut down the shutdown in less than 15 days. And some states like Florida have already reopened their beaches. So here's my proposition. Regardless of the plans of our elected officials to reopen the country by May 1st, I implore each of you to exercise better personal judgment. Sit this single de Mayo out so that the only Corona you're getting is a beer from your refrigerator. Send mom a virtual hug on Mother's Day and reserve the right to hold her tight in a few months. And barbecue in your own backyard for your own household on Memorial Day. As far as the summer goes, we can cross that bridge when we get to it. And while this seems like a huge sacrifice now, it's only a minor setback that I'm confident will set us up for a major comeback in the not so distant future. This is the time for us to love each other enough to stay apart so that we can stay together. Remember, we all used to be somebody else. What's most important is that we're always working to be better today than we were yesterday. You be the cure you wish to see in the world. Peace.